Awesome. Hey, now let me preach for a minute. Um, I only got about a minute left, but I do got a word for you. It's going to go late, so team, just help me. It's going to go late. I don't care. It's just, let me preach for a minute. Okay, Genesis 26. I love the Old Testament. Listen, if you unhitch from the Old Testament, you unhitch from Orthodox Christianity. <clears throat> I don't believe in divorcing the Old Testament from the New. Now, we live in a better covenant. It's a new covenant, but the Old Testament is not somehow less inspired. Anywhere you cut the scripture, it bleeds the atoning blood of Jesus. <clears throat> and in Genesis 26, it tells us the story of one of the patriarchs, Isaac, his interaction with God, the covenant that God makes with him. And I believe especially on a Sunday like this, the principles and paradigms from chapter 26 of the first book in the Bible speak to us in a prophetic fashion about the moment that our church is in today. And so with that in mind, I share with you these scriptures today. Genesis 26, starting in verse 1. The Bible says this, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham and Isaac. He went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and Gerar. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt, but instead live in the land of which I shall tell you. I want you to see the prophetic pattern of the Old Testament. In Genesis 12, Abraham encounters famine. In Genesis 26, Isaac encounters famine. In Genesis 32, Jacob encounters famine. In Genesis 41, Joseph encounters famine. Every generation encounters famine, but it's what you do with it that counts. See, I believe a famine in the land is an opportunity for the church. Why? Because we are God's solution in the earth and what dictates our prosperity isn't the stock market, it ain't the weather patterns, it's not the political system, it is a covenantal blessing from God that the enemy does not have permission to steal. Famine for the region is favor for the people of God. Yeah, everyone says we going into a recession. Not so for the people of God. The government says we going into a dark winter of death and illness. They can't even shoot down a balloon. Not so for the people of God. When the world is at its worst, the church is at her best. When cities are overcome with problems, the people of God are the solution. In God's economy, there is only increase, and in his kingdom, there is only freedom. And friend, you will either read the Bible through the lens of the news, or you will read the news through the lens of the Bible. I will not operate in fear. I will not operate in lack. I will not operate in poverty. For my God will supply everything I'm in need of according to the riches in Christ Jesus. So watch what Deuteronomy 28 says. You was blessed in the city and you're blessed in the country. You're blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Blessed should be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, the increase of your herds. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Your enemies will come against you one way. They will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command a blessing. The Lord will establish your life. The Lord will grant you plenty. The Lord will open up his good treasure and bless your worth. You will lend to the nations, but you shall not borrow, and God will make 
make you the head and not the tail. Oh, there might be famine in the land, but there's a blessing in the house. And just like the children of Israel who put the blood of a lamb over their doorpost and death passed over them, how much more for you and I today when the blood of the lamb is applied to the doorpost of our hearts? You know, the true famine we face today, it ain't an economic one. It's not an agricultural one. It's a spiritual one. Watch what the prophet Amos says to the people of God in Amos 8. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, where I'll send a famine through the land. No, not a famine of food or water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea. They will wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Is that not true in the Northwest? Are we not starving for the words of the Lord? Are people not tired of dead religion? Are people not weary of wineskins without wine, jars without oil, and churches without power? Oh, why can't you just be content with Snohomish? Why can't you just settle into Seattle? Why does pursuit always got to be on the move, take another mountain, conquer another region? Because friend, there is a famine and I'm not just going to sit around and complain about it. We're going to strike the ground until living water begins to flow. <coughs> and why does God tell Isaac, don't go to Egypt? Because Egypt looks like it's prosperous. Egypt sounds like it would be easier. Egypt seems like a solution to a complicated problem. Oh, I know what Egypt looks like, but the blessing ain't in somebody else's house, it's in mine. Yeah, everyone asks, when are you moving to the South? When you coming to LA? When you gonna plant a church in the Bible Belt? Oh, you blow up in Montana. Oh, you'd have a mega church if you moved to the Midwest. I like what C.T. Studd once said. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. If God can bless us in the middle of Snohomish, if God can bless us in the middle of Seattle, then God can bless us in the middle of Kirkland. What is too hard for this God that we serve? Hasn't he proved himself faithful? Hasn't he proved himself good? Hasn't he proved himself praiseworthy? So I ask you again, what is too hard? for this God that we serve and see when you follow God what follows God follows you and this is why David declares surely goodness and mercy it'll follow me all the days of my life miracles are chasing us provision is chasing us blessing is chasing us and if through patient endurance I'll follow the commands of the Lord he will command a blessing that the world cannot take no don't run from what looks hard no don't run from what looks dry and whatever you do resist the temptation to go to Egypt instead live in the land which I shall tell you and I will cause blessing to come up from underneath your feet. Verse three. Now dwell in this land. I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I give these lands. I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. 
I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and kept my commandments and kept my statutes and kept my laws. God is saying to Isaac, there is something I promised your forefathers that I desire to accomplish through your life, but it won't be possible until you learn the art of dwelling in the land. See, that word dwell in the Hebrew means to assemble, to stay, to abide, to tarry, to enter in as a newcomer until God grants you prosperity. See, friend, we are immigrants to revival, but we are not leaving until God performs everything that he has promised to do. I am not visiting revival. I am building my house here. This isn't a weekend getaway for me. This isn't an Airbnb vacation rental. This isn't a cabin I spend the weekends at only to come back to dry dead living. We are gonna assemble. We are gonna abide. We are gonna tarry until God grants us prosperity. Now, why am I asking you to dwell at Pursuit? Because your kids deserve a church they're excited to attend. Why am I asking you to dwell at Pursuit? Because one day we will baptize your friends and family members at this altar. Why am I asking you to dwell at Pursuit? Because nothing great gets built by people who casually visit when it's convenient. See, friends, your faithfulness this church, your spiritual commitment. It isn't just about building something cool for us. It is fulfilling the promises God made to the last generation. They prayed and believed. They contended and they cried out. They served and they gave. And God is saying to that great cloud of witnesses, watch, I will perform the oath I swore to you when you walk this land. When I read this, I just get this mental image of Jesus going up to the great cloud of witnesses in heaven and saying, hey, you thought I forgot. You thought I was slack concerning my promises. You thought maybe you missed it. You thought maybe I missed it. You thought maybe you was crazy or I was crazy. You maybe thought you would never live to see the day in which I would accomplish what I swore to you that I would do. But why don't you peek down into the Northwest? Why don't you pull back that curtain and gaze in with interest? Because what I am telling you is that what is happening here is the fulfillment of promises that God made to intercessors in the last generation. And the promises of God, they are yes and they are amen. If he said it, he will do it, and that's good enough for us. Oh, I can hear him in heaven today. I can hear him elbowing those who walked this land who the world was not worthy of. I can hear him saying to Wendell. I can hear him saying to Ken Hutcherson. I can hear him saying to the pastors, the prophets, and the priests who ministered in the Northwest but died not receiving their inheritance. Open up your eyes, because I am faithful to finish what I started, and look what I am doing now. No, we are the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham. Now watch. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. The men of that place, they asked about his wife. Oh, 
He said, no, she ain't my wife. She's my sister. For he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought lest the men of this place kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful to behold. She's my sister. She ain't my wife. We're related, but we ain't married. Hey, we're family, but nah, we ain't in covenant. Isaac is afraid to claim Rebecca as his wife because he is convinced the people will kill him because of who he is married to. And it struck me. This is how many people treat the bride of Christ. I'm afraid to let folks know I'm married, lest the culture cancel me, lest the city turn on me, lest my enemies overtake me. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but it ain't that serious. Oh yeah, I go to church, but it's just that little thing on the weekend. I won't put it on my socials. I won't advertise it to my friends. I don't really want anyone to know about the commitments that I have made. But watch what Jesus says. If a man seek to save his life, he will lose it. But if he loses his life for my sake, he will find it. Friends, you you can't kill what is already dead. No, we come out of the closet as Jesus freaks. There is no turning back. We are dead to the world, yet we are alive in Christ. And I simply cannot be ashamed of the bridegroom nor the bride because Jesus wasn't ashamed of me. And in fact, Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. No, the Bible doesn't say the church is the living girlfriend of Christ. It doesn't say it's the OnlyFans hookup of Christ. It doesn't say the church is the tender date of Christ. It doesn't say the church is the Christian mingle, casual night out at Applebee's of Christ. It says the church is the bride of Christ, which means you can't fall in love with the bridegroom unless you are willing to be married to the bride. They're a package deal. It's not one or the other. It's not either or. It is both and. And I think for many of us, in an effort to sound spiritual, we say dumb things like this. Well, I love Jesus. I'm just not sure about the church. The church wasn't your idea, it was his. The church wasn't man's idea, it was God's. And it's the only organization that God has promised the gates of hell will not be able to stand against. And so yeah, I'm coming out of the closet. I am married to the bride. I am married to the church. I am in love with the bridegroom. And in doing so, see here's the reality. Some of us expect the blessing of covenant but all we have is the commitment of adultery. I sleep with the bride when it's beneficial to me, but God forbid I claim this as my own. Now watch. Then Isaac sowed in the land and he reaped in that same year a hundredfold. And in doing so, the Lord blessed him. I love this. And the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants, so much so that the Philistines envied him. I don't believe in the prosperity gospel, but I do believe the gospel will cause us to prosper. 
And prosperity only offends people who haven't encountered it for themselves. Now, I think prosperity looks different depending on what season you're in. Sometimes God will cause you to grow deep. Other times he'll cause you to grow wide. Sometimes prosperity looks internal. Other times it looks external. But I'm not going to allow the bad teaching of the past to be the thing that robs me of God's blessing in the present. Do you know what the right response to bad teaching is? Good teaching. Do you know what the right response to bad theology is? Good theology. And sometimes people react to one ditch by falling in the other ditch. See, I believe in prosperity because I believe in the law of sowing and reaping. And watch what the Bible says. Isaac sowed, and in the same year he reaped, and it was a hundredfold what he sowed. Hear me, friend. You don't get a generous harvest without a generous seed. Watch what the scripture says, 2 Corinthians 9. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Galatians 6, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. Luke 6, give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. For what you measure with, it will also be measured unto you. Proverbs 22, the generous will themselves be blessed. For they share their food with the poor, Psalms 112. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. And how did God bless him? With possessions until his enemies envied him. And this is why I refuse to be offended at someone else's blessing. Because I likely have no idea about the generosity of their seed. There was a famine in the land, but there was a man named Isaac who began to prosper, who continued to prosper until he was very prosperous. And he had flocks and he had herds and he had servants to such an extent that even his enemies envied the blessing of God. And this is why it's so important that you understand the difference between the blessing of God and the blessing of man. See, the blessing of God cannot be revoked. The promotion of God cannot be canceled. The blessing of man is temporary, but the blessing of God is eternal. And if you will humble yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord, he will promote you you in due time. And when he does, your promotion is not up to the vote of the loudest voices in the crowd. Because when God says it's time, it in fact is time, regardless of the opinions of people around you. So why are we planting in Kirkland? Because God says it's time. Now, it don't always make sense to me. Oftentimes it confounds my own fragile human limitations to ascertain and understand the ways in which God works. But I do know this, when God puts his hand on something, when God opens a door, no man can close it. When God makes paths straight, the enemy come in like a flood, God raises up a standard. I'm just telling you, when God says it's time, you've got the opportunity to position yourself under his mighty hand to receive his blessing, or you miss out on it and then get offended at somebody else who caught it. So I'm not just praying for rain, I'm bringing an umbrella because when God says it's time, it's time. Now verse 15. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And they had filled them with dirt. 
And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. <laughs> See, it, it's, it's my conviction that the enemy wants to turn your well of living water into a planter box of disappointment. He wants you to grow so accustomed to being thirsty that you give up on getting a drink. Oh friend, I know that there's a lot of junk in this here well. There's a lot of attitudes and preferences. There's a lot of religion and hurt, disappointment and, and, and disillusionment. But friend, we must now begin the hard work of redigging because we are convinced that although there's a lot of dirt and although it's been a long time and although our enemies have celebrated their victories, there is living water underneath our feet. And friend, I am convinced that there is still a well in the Northwest. I, I am convinced that it resides just under where we are standing. I am convinced that if we will add our shovels together, God will restore what the enemy has stolen and this place will once again be known for renewal and awakening. I am convinced that if we will be faithful to the task at hand, God will make the enemy pay for every year that he has stolen from God's people in the Northwest. I know what it used to be. It used to be living water. I know what it used to feel like. I know what it used to look like. But friend, if you could allow your memory to serve as a testimony of what God would desire to do again, then living wells that are now filled up with dirt wouldn't present themselves as obstacles, but instead as opportunities for God to do his best work in and through our lives. Abraham had a well, but when he died, the Philistines took advantage of the lack of of a spiritual father and in doing so poured dirt on what used to look like renewal, revival, and awakening. So God raised up an Isaac who remembered the stories of what would happen when Abraham walked the earth and he committed himself to take his little shovel and his few servants and a couple of his friends and dig until God did for him what he did for the last generation. And that is who we are. And that is why I'm asking you to commit yourself to this great task that is ahead because memories are testimonies to people who have enough faith to cry out that God would do it again. And I love this. Isaac calls these wells by the names which his father had called them. Do you remember the names of the heroes who walked before us? You remember the stories that they used to tell of salvations and healings and miracles. <laughs> Friend, it is happening again. And that's why we declare rejoice, O barren. You who do not have children, break forth and shout. You who are not in labor, for you will be desolate no more. And Isaac moved from there and he dug another well. <coughs> he 
and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Look, friend, there's enough living water to go around. The only thing competition will do in your life is stop you from receiving out of the overflow of what God desires to do. Well, this water is ours. We was here first. Stay on your side of town. What does a bunch of rednecks from Snohomish know about Kirkland anyways? To tell you the truth, not much. But I serve the God from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And guess what? It belonged to him first. And if the Lord makes room, it's because he's already got people set aside to fill it. And if the Lord makes room, then it's the responsibility of the church to seize it. And if the Lord makes room, then there is no time like the present. So let us not say four months and then the harvest. Let us lift up our eyes for the fields. They are ripe. Then Isaac went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him that same night. He said, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you, and I will multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, and he called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. I'm going to end here, but you have to see this. All throughout the Old Testament, these two things are built in conjunction with one another. Altars and wells. They were both spiritual and practical. You sow at the altar, but you reap at the well. You sacrifice at the altar, but you rejoice at the well. See, friend, altars honor what was, but wells feed what's next. If all you have is an altar, then all you've got is a memory. But if all you've got is a well, then what you're missing out on is legacy. But when you marry an altar of sacrifice to a well of living water, you've got an outpouring in a region. And that, my friend, is exactly what we are going after. Last week, I preached on altars. This week, I'm preaching on wells. And we need both if we want to see the Northwest come into its God-ordained destiny. We have sacrificed at the altar. We have prayed at the altar. We have given at the altar. We have cried at the altar. We have contended at the altar. But the Bible says that there is a river that flows that makes the city rejoice. And I'm telling you, we've got an altar, but now we're building a well. And it's going to serve this generation. And it's going to serve the next generation and the generation after that until living water floods these streets and transforms every family all across the Northwest.
How many dirt-filled wells exist within a hundred-mile radius of this church? Give me every single one. Let's add our shovels together and let's dig so that the next generation can taste and see that the Lord is good. We're going to redig wells because the Philistines don't get to dictate our future. We're going to redig wells because God is after more than just a memory of what was. We need an outpouring of what's now. We're going to redig wells because God made a promise to our father Abraham and he made a promise to the legends who walked before us. And the best way to honor heroes of the faith is by running further than them. And I hear that voice today. Run, Russell, run. Run, pursued, run. This is your hour. This is your moment. Oh, we've got a river of life and it's flowing out of me. It causes the lame to walk and the blind to see. It opens prison doors. It sets the captives free. Oh, we got a river of living water and it's flowing out of us. We've got a well and now it's time to dig. And anytime you start digging, you got David's brothers who come out to give their opinions. Who are you? Why do you think you can do anything about it? Have you really come out to mock us? Is there not a cause? Is there not a reason to fight? Who are these uncircumcised Philistines who oppose the armies of the living God? Is this not our moment? Is this not our divine hour and window of opportunity? I know there's water underneath our feet. I know there's oil left in these jars. I know there's glory left in this region. So let us pick up the baton that others have dropped and let us run the race with endurance until heaven comes to earth and a generation is born again. That is who we are and that is the type of God we serve. Kirkland isn't the last well, it's the next one. And when you get thirsty enough, you can smell water. <laughs> I can smell it, we're close. If this isn't revival, it is the closest I have ever been. And we are gonna dig until the earth resounds with glory. So let us add our shovels together. Let us redig the wells of our forefathers. And let us come into agreement with what Jesus says in John 7. 
all of those who believe will receive and out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. If you don't want to dig for you, would you dig for your children? If you don't want to dig for you, would you dig for your grandchildren? If you don't want to dig for you, would you dig because Jesus is worthy? This is our moment. Can't you see it? Can't you sense it? This is our opportunity. There's water in this ground and we're not stopping until the streets are flooded with glory. Come on, let me pray for you. Father, now in the mighty name of Jesus, God, I pray that you would make our path straight. Every highway low, every low way high, every crooked way straight. You are the one who causes rivers to come up in wilderness places. God, I thank you that you have not forgotten your promises and neither have we. So even as Habakkuk prayed in the Old Testament, God, I pray today, revive your work in our day. And God will give you all the praise and glory and honor. Some of you are standing in this room and if you were to be honest, you got dirt covering up your well. You've allowed the pain and the disappointment of what you've walked through to be the reason why you can't come in contact with all that God desires to do. And today would be a good day to start digging, to start unplugging, to start working on those things that have been stopped up because God's got more for your life and your best days are ahead of you. So God, today by your spirit, do the necessary heart surgery we need. And in doing so, God, may we come alive in your river. May we build an altar and may we build a well. And in doing so, may you pour out a blessing that we cannot contain. We'll give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, all God's people said amen. And amen.